In 2020, the World Economic Forum estimated that AI might destroy 85 million jobs by 2025. A 2022 study by the U.S. Government Accountability Office found that between 9 and 47% of jobs could be automated, particularly jobs requiring lower education levels or more routine tasks. Not surprisingly, workers, particularly low-skilled ones, perceive automation, specifically robots, as threatening to their jobs. Fear and resentment towards job-stealing machines are not new. Throughout the series of overlapping industrial revolutions in history, many jobs were indeed diminished or replaced by machines. Yet other jobs were created over time. They're the words from part three of our guest's brilliant book, The Magic Conveyor Belt. Welcome back, Professor Yossi Sheffi. Hi, Aiden. Nice to see you again. Great to be with you again, sir. And I learned so much from this book. I'd love to, before we get into part three and four, which paint both sides of the argument here, the dystopian and the utopian view, which I feel you're certainly an optimist. At the end of the day, I'm an, I'm an optimist. Yeah. I thought we'd give a quick overview, as you do in the book, of the industrial revolutions and this resistance to automation that's always been there. Yes. So, uh, Clearly, the, you know, the first industrial revolution uh, moved from manual production to machines, started in the, uh, in the UK, actually, between 1750 and 1850. The looms were uh, mechanized. The second industrial revolution, 1850 to 1950, the assembly line, the telegraph, electricity. Um, the third industrial revolution was the digital revolution, when we had the... Um, you know, PCs and phones and Wi-Fi and fiber optics and containers. Very important for uh, for supply chain management. And the fourth industrial revolution is what really we're living through today. It's the, um, we're living through the widespread use of connected devices, uh, you know, IoT, AI, conversational computing. There's also something called the fifth industrial revolution, which is the EU is running. It's more aspirational. It's not really happening yet. They hope that the fourth industrial revolution will turn into something that will, uh, that advanced tech will work with people and will not just displace people and solve problems uh, that people cannot solve otherwise and basically amplify human, uh, human creativity. The important point in this, that there were always, always um, resistance, in many cases, violent resistance. You know, the Luddites in the, uh, in the first industrial revolution, the fourth, the hunger march, the second industrial uh, revolution, there were always a problem. Uh, yet, in every, and, and by the way, a few jobs were lost. Some jobs were really lost in the sense that, uh, you know, we don't have any more um, elevator operators. We don't have any more telephone exchange operators. We don't have, you know, computers used to be a job description. I mean, that's a, a lot of women used to sit in big offices and do financial statements and do uh, do accounting. You know, telegram messengers, the uh, cockpit crew used to have five people in the uh, for airline. Now it has only, only two and you really need no one, but we still have two. Uh, so some, some jobs were lost. If you look, for example, um, we, we can give my, um, uh, more example later, but the most important thing is that many more jobs were created. In fact, 
Oxford, Oxford Research 10 years ago said that, I don't know, close to 37% or 40% of the job in the U.S. will disappear by 2023. Yet, but 2023 is here, and we are living with 3.5% unemployment, which is the lowest ever. So it's, a, as Niels Bohr once said, it's difficult to predict, especially the future. So, <laughs> you know, it's a... It's hard. It's a, it's, a, it's a moving technology. It's not yet stable. Um, some things are working very well with the, with AI. Uh, right now, that's the uh, what people are most most worried about. We can talk about AI versus generative AI. But uh, in all throughout history, and the reason I talk in the book about history is because I don't know what the future is. And when people try to forecast, they look at history. So at every big change, there was, you know, people thought that, you know, people thought that uh, when the um, when the slide rule came, you know, the end of mathematics. No, but but people lost the ability to estimate. Actually, we were not very good at, uh, at estimate. So that things that there are some changes. But by and large, many, many more jobs were working. The population grew and we still live with low unemployment. So many, many more jobs. And we can give more example of job creation. Well, come back to that because I, th- I think you finish with that and the, the desired skills that are, are most coveted today as well towards the end of the book. But I thought we'd maybe pull on a couple of things that are really relevant to resistance to change. And this goes for both new technologies, but also innovation itself. You talked about, for example, eBay and PayPal, these kind of companies that these two-sided platform companies, that one of the reasons they actually snuck in into uh, society or, and had proliferation was because they came in before the 2008 crash. So there there wasn't the hyper-regulation, for example. And in the book, you it's a brilliant read about this, where you talk about the resistance, using regulation to resist changes as well. And this is just like plugging the dam, like the little Dutch boy with the finger in the dam, because the change will eventually come. Yeah. What I'm saying is, one of the points I mentioned in the book is that uh, people are, some people are freaking out with regenerative AI, and I said, chill, basically. It, it happens so much slower than people think. I give the example that uh, a job that disappeared, the um, um, telephone exchange operators. 1892, uh, AT&T invented the, the automated uh, exchange. In 1950, there were still 350,000 pe- uh, telephone exchange operators in the United States. Only 1980, nine decades later, really, the jobs went away. It takes time. It does take time. And it takes time for a variety of reasons. One of them is regulation. Even now, by the way, EU... China, US are all trying to regulate the development of generative AI. Um, so, and it will slow, clearly, it will slow, uh, slow the development. There are unions who are, uh, in many cases, dead set against any, any automation. And people who doubt it should look at the, compare the um, Los Angeles and the Long Beach ports to really advanced ports like. Dubai and Rotterdam and uh, you know Singapore, um, the the level of automation and the productivity that goes with it is is just un, uh, unmet. But there's another thing 
that people don't think about, and this is the public acceptance of, of automation. And the, the exact classic example I gave is today's airliner can go get with get to get across the Atlantic. With, you don't need a pilot. Uh, not too many of your readers, of your of your listener, will go on a you know metal box that flies at thirty five thousand feet over the Atlantic with no with, uh, with no pilot. But also to, not too many will go on a highway when the you know, robotic trucks with no driver going you know hundred kilometers an hour right next to them. That's people will have uh, and I give some examples of, um, of of resistance that actually bore fruit in the, in the United States. Long combination vehicles, you know, a truck that has two or three trailers, allowed only in very limited uh, cases because of the railroad, which has economic interest to make sure that it will die, um, fought against it, very effective fight. So, all this, there are lots of interests that are against change. As you say, at the end, technology always wins. It always comes in because why? Because the company who uses technology or the person who uses technology, the end becomes so much more productive and so much more efficient that they win and the others have to join no matter what. So by and large, this this happened, but it takes it. You know that in the U.S. Uh, example that came to my head. You can in most places you can you go to fill your car with gas. You fill it yourself. There are two states in the United States when it's illegal. It's illegal to protect to protect the uh, uh, the workers. So you go to Seattle, you cannot fill gas. It's illegal in in, in Seattle. Uh, in 1584, William Lee invented the mechanical uh, knitting machine. He came to uh, it's called stocking frame. He came to Queen Elizabeth I. So it was a while ago, and gave her a pair of stockings that he made with a machine. She almost beheaded him. She, he wanted the license to do it. She said, absolutely not, because she was worried about jobs that will disappear. You can think about the first, you know, regulating technology. Now, at the end, of course, mechanization happened, and this takes place, but it takes a long time. If I may, I'll jump to one point I make in the end of the book, that companies should right now and workers should not not think about upgrading skills and getting ready for what's coming. In fact, I just wrote, it's not in the book, but I just wrote, you may not know it, but there are a lot of strikes now in the U.S. The auto worker strike, the Hollywood Hollywood strike, uh, UPS just got got a good good contract. Lots of labor. And I wrote the piece it, you know, it's on Harvard Business Review, actually, uh, coming up. It's online, probably, already, saying that all these workers are negotiating the wrong thing because they're all focused on today on getting X more. Said what you should right now. You have some leverage because people still need the workers. You should negotiate on how you work in the AI, in the advanced AI world. You should what you should demand. Okay, salary fine, but you also should demand that the company will absolutely invest in upgrading your skills, not just giving you a few more cents per hour. That's, that's short-term thinking. People have to get, get ready for this, but there's time. And, com- and, and unions should think about that's what they should be negotiating. <laughs> Make sure that the company invests in you. That's what's important. 
your point there, I, I love the story about the tra- the trailers and how the US Congress actually backed the railways and actually there was a million dollar campaign, multi-million dollar campaign uh, in the newspapers, on, on the TV. There was TV ads that you describe in the book. I'm going to write about it and actually just bring attention to that because it's so important what you said there. And And what I thought was crazy was to your point here, Instead of actually spending those multi-million dollars to defend, what if they actually used it as an offense and went, actually, we're going to invest this money in innovation and change and actually... Yes, yes. That's the point. Rather than, rather than invest the money in stopping technological progress and efficiency and productivity, this is so backwards thinking, so backwards. But by the way, the rules still apply today. Yeah. The campaign was a, a, a fear campaign. Basically, uh, you are so afraid. Even and and the data did the data did not support it. There were actually less accidents with the long combination vehicles because drivers are a lot more careful. It's harder to drive. Didn't matter. The fear, you know, because they didn't go to Congress. They went to the public, and the public wrote the congressman. Oh, you know, didn't work. So it, it's. Uh, pathetic that this thing take place but it there's, a, there's a guy uh, a friend of the show a guy called david kerrigan he, he wrote a book uh, called the, the about driverless cars essentially he was telling me that while the it's hard to find if this is a fact or not but when first cars started uh, proliferating the marketplace the, the people were paid to actually poor people were given money and said we look after your family if you jump in front of the car in order to actually to show that the cars are unsafe. And I was like, kind of going, this, this is just a modern day version of that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a fact that you can, you can find out. In Chicago, when the first car came, in front of the car, there used to be a man with a flag going to alert the public that there's a car coming. It's, <laughs> you know, so now we have the driver and a flagman, not a, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, but it's it's just like I think the point here that I I thought was really important is a regulation is a short term game. It, use it if it's to buy yourself time, and then secondly, that w- why not reinvest that energy and that phone finance into yourself as a person, like you said, reinvest in your skill. I don't. Sometimes regulation makes sense when it, the risks are unknown. For example, there are a lot of people calling to some stop or regulation of generative AI, because nobody knows where it's going. Even the, the, the people who develop it don't understand exactly how it works. So, okay, I can understand there may be risk. And then it's interesting, the EU, the China, the US are all thinking about how to regulate. It's not easy. But the interesting thing in this case, and why I'm actually, one of the reasons I'm optimistic is uh, I'm old enough to been there in the early days of the internet. And we were all very excited. Here comes something that could connect all humanity and do things together and all the information, all this. Nobody told us about identity theft. Nobody told us about terrorists, you know, talking to each other and plotting something over the internet. Uh, nobody told us about cybersecurity problems, stealing our data. Now, in the very early days of AI, the developers, are putting guardrails around it. The developer are talking to the government about regulating. They all understand that we don't want to make some, the same mistakes again. So that's one reason to be optimistic about it. I'm going to move on because the what, what I love what you do 
is you give us a language and a framework and i just want to say how how comprehensive this book is it's not just about supply chains if you are anybody in the world and we're facing this period of absolute vuca this book is so useful for for the language and the frameworks and just the examples that yossi gives you say here in a, a section called the Anot- anatomy of logistics jobs replaced by machines so this this is really important there's two basic functions you tell us of logistics warehousing and transportation both areas are experiencing s- substantial automation efforts that may lead to job losses and job changes for logistics professionals. Maybe you'll share your observations about these two functions because they're actually what's being changed. And and as you say, it's creative destruction. They'll be broken down and they'll be recalibrated, but there's a place for the human in the future. Exactly. So, so think about, let's start with warehousing. Think about Amazon. Amazon is a, in 2017, we started really putting robots everywhere. In all, all, all the world, they're very sophisticated. The robots are taking a whole, you know, aisle and bringing it to the person and saving a lot of workers. At the same time, they hire over a million workers. And uh, since then, because they, they do a lot more and things they've never done before. And now, now they're doing it with the fresh, uh, fresh food and uh, all this. it works. Um, there's of course some maybe uh, okay we'll go we'll go to this later um, uh, trucks we're talking about uh, autonomous trucking basically um, and the question is how should people how should the workforce be prepared for it well autonomous truck think about how drones today work how the U.S. military has somebody sitting in uh, some bunker uh, in Nevada and drone and uh, throwing a missile on some terrorists in in Africa. Okay, think about a fleet of uh, autonomous trucks. There will be, or well, every two, three or four of them will be controlled by one person sitting in air-conditioned room and, uh, you know, and having coffee. The trucks, by the way, there are lots of, inc- lots more. So first of all, there will be lots more trucking. So lots more jobs. Second, the trucking will go only what's called it, exit to exit. They cannot go in the city. Cities are not built for trucks to get to get into. So a truck will go to some truck stop. There'll be people working there who will service the truck, oil it, uh, fuel it, whatever. Then probably an electric tractor will come, pick the truck and going to in the last five, ten miles into the city and bring it, bring it go. So there'll be a lot of new jobs there. Um, so in all of this, and this just doesn't even talk about new industries. And I have to give one example about what I mean by we don't know how far it will go. So one of the example of job of changing jobs was when Ford created the assembly line. So before that, there were a group of people making making group of artisans making group working on a car. They knew all the jobs involved. Change completely to the assembly line. And workers stood next to the assembly line did the same job. They did the same uh, screw over and over again. And the cars move, move, uh, move around. By the way, the same idea that Amazon had a hundred years later, get, move the, you know, the work to the workers rather than the worker to the work. But anyway, in the, uh, the, the number of workers in Ford went from about several thousand to 150,000 in the heydays of the Model T. So people think, okay, more jobs were created. No, 
many more jobs created because cars became a lot less expensive. Because of this, people started, uh, the United States built freeways, hotel, motel, restaurant, the whole hospitality industry, including millions of jobs, exploded. Now, Ford, when he did the assembly, just tried to be more efficient in building cars. He didn't try to build a whole new industry, but it happened. It didn't happen on day one, but over time, it, it happened. So it, that's what I mean. It's hard to imagine all the new industry and new jobs that will be created as, as we go forward with any new technology. So not, I, I don't know which new industry will be created, but you can see it's some of it already. But I'm sure there will be a lot of new jobs and new industry. But people have to be more digitally savvy, that's for sure, and have to be more um, able to change and be uh, agreeable to change, agreeable, because jobs will change. They're not going to so much disappear as change. The way you build towards that is really helpful. Like, for example, you go, okay, here's how jobs change like so you're, you say okay they're removed but in the short term they're removed for example you said there the internet nobody thought about the internet years later being cyber cr crime fighting cyber crime being a massive job uh, you know yeah like security on the internet like nobody could have perceived that because we couldn't see that far ahead but you, you talk about the ways this happens and this was really useful so the labels here for example de-skilling scaling these these kind of labels become really useful to be able to get your head around and kind of go okay what am i talking about here so maybe you take us through each of these separately so the first is de-skilling so i i go to three stages you can think about of until job disappears and but just talk about the disappear not about the new job creation so the first one is de-skilling Reducing the need for expertise, which means in some sense democratizing jobs, but they're also allowing lower pay workers to, uh, to do the job. I'll give examples in a minute. The second one is scaling. Technology that helps operators do their job and do their job better, so maybe require less operators. And finally, it's elimination. It's total automation. It's impossible in some cases. So some examples of, of this scaling. There are many examples. I'll give one. You know, the, the example that I love are the um, the black taxis in you know in London. Of course, to used to be a, to be a driver, you need to go to four years studying and do the the exam to get what's called the knowledge. Not every street and every point of interest in London, which is a you know an archaic knowledge, and it was it was considered the the, the toughest exam in the world, the final exam to get it, and it started from you know, uh, came, uh, horse and carriage and then moved to the taxi. But then came, you know, GPS and Uber and, uh, you know, uh, maps, the digital maps, and suddenly everybody could do it. And it, you didn't, you didn't know. So this is an example of this skilling. Actually, there are more people ferrying people around London. Uh, the number of, of blue, of, of black taxi went from about 20,000 to about, about half between eight and 10,000, but there are tens of thousands Uber drivers and, uh, you know, all over the place. Actually, London is one of the places, the easiest and the fastest to get an uh, uh, Uber. So that's an example of, uh, of, uh, of this. Of course, the ultimate de-skilling is when you let the consumer do the job. 
So whether you uh, self-checkout in, in, in supermarket or ATMs when you don't need the, uh, uh, you know, automatic teller machine, when you don't need the, the teller automatic. And even today, building a website, is there are tools to build it. You just build it yourself. Now, scaling is when do more with less. So you have, uh, you know, warehouse workers who will do, you know, all kind of tools and uh, to do more all kind of machinery. But the best example is uh, agriculture. Started from working with hand, working with, uh, you know, horses or then uh, oxes, then tractors, then uh, combines, and now it's automated. There are automated combines that run, you don't need uh, work. Agriculture in 1900, 41% of the U.S. workforce was engaged in agriculture. In 2000, it was 1.9%. So, and it's not like, yes, yeah, so job, some jobs were eliminated, other jobs were changed, but you don't see it. The jobs that were changed are jobs that people who are building these new combines, people who are maintaining these new combines, people who are running the, the drones who run, oh, run over the field to find out what's going on. People develop new seeds that can do with, uh, that can uh, deal with automating the, there are, sewing machine that check exactly the um, the uh, characteristics of, of every piece of uh, of soil in order to put how much seed to put. The seed had to be redesigned in order to be able to. So a lot of jobs to get created. Some jobs were lost. The brick baking jobs working working in the hot sun in Texas were lost. I mean, or at least the, a lot a lot less of them. So uh, there are all of these examples, and so, as I say, some jobs were eliminated, whether it's elevator operator, exchange operator, telegram messengers, things like yeah, some jobs, some do disappear, but mostly, nah. Brilliant, brilliant. And I, I pulled out a, a key point. I just wanted to consolidate the the point here, and I thought this was such a beautifully written passage as well. So bear with me for a sec as I read this. It says. What some of the debate about automation possibly misses is that technology will lead to currently unknown developments, some beneficial and some not. For instance, as some examples in this section of the book demonstrate, technological development has resulted in many more jobs than it eliminated. Frequently, the newly created jobs were not even in the industry where jobs were eliminated or substantially changed. They were in new industries that did not exist before. This, you say, reflects the central problem in any discussion of technology and jobs. The lost jobs are known and tangible. One can imagine and sympathize with the people who lose their jobs. The new future jobs do not help those people because the jobs do not exist yet. It is not even known what these jobs are going to be. That absolutely nails the point. And I thought that was just a beautifully written passage because I fall into that category sometimes, Jossie, as well, where I think it's like a little bit of a game of musical chairs where we're running out of chairs. The more we automate, the, the, the less jobs there are going to be. But I think I'm just falling victim to that passage as well. So bravo to you. Everybody is falling victim. I talk to, you know, I talk to journalists all, all the time and talk to Bloomberg, talk to all kinds of journalists, and they're all a little petrified. They say that uh, one of them told me, I'm on a ledge, Professor Sheffy. I'm on a ledge. I'm ready to jump. I said, don't jump yet. <laughs> uh, because they all think, oh, AI is coming. It will be my image with AI. Come, first of all, who, who would love? 
you are good looking women nobody's gonna woman nobody's gonna fall in love with a you know a robot but uh, at least not yet we're working on it we're working on it we're working it will take a while but so what should they do what should they do I said look you are in an industry this industry will change there will be you know for example you are writing a script talking to uh, somebody on TV who was writing script said so the main industry Guess what? Ten years from now, you will not be writing script. ChatGPT, the ChatGPT 15 or whatever it will be by then, will write the script. What you need to develop is the ability to critically read the script, to find out what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what your audience would like, what your audience would look like. You need to develop this, as well as the ability to use ChatGPT to develop a script, as well as if you want to, Tangent, tangential uh, uh, jobs not in front of the camera behind the camera do the you know the programming the, the there's a lot of jobs there that will still be there and you understand them get to know the mortgage how they will change in short it's on you I mean it, it it's on you because if your company would not invest you need to invest in this and, and you need to think about what Where this may be going you've teed us up beautifully for the next section which is robots as co-workers not competition so this is the idea of collaborative robots or cobots but I wanted to share this with you there's a an artist I love a musical artist a guy called Ola for Arnolds he's a pianist and I've talked about him before in the show because he does that he just absolutely nails this point that you're making here and I'd love you to give some examples of He, what he does Yossi is he has a piano I've seen him play live in the concert hall here in Dublin I'd love to have you over here someday and bring you there it's beautiful but he played he has he has three pianos two of them are automated and what he did was he got a friend who was a computer programmer to hack an old MIDI synth so this thing that would what it was developed for for was to be able to play um, with a, a, a piano be able to play any kind of synthesized sound. So this device, and he hacked it, and he used it to basically, when he plays the piano, he said, "I'm a classical pianist, and if I'm taught that I play an A and then I play a G minor or B, whatever, I don't play the piano. So whatever that sequence you're taught as a human, he says, "I've programmed the pianos, the two of them, to bring me in a different direction that I would never have thought about before." And he said, "It's what it does next. It's because." I play a key and then it plays this beautiful sequence that it makes me think oh, I never thought about that before and then I'll play in a different way and I said that's exactly what the point Yasi's making here it's where it brings you but you have to be open to that exactly and, and by the way this is the aspirational side of the fifth so fifth uh, uh, industrial revolution the EU is talking about is increasing creativity actually and this is a perfect example. Um, now we talk about what's um, what are the key qualities of humanities that in the it's hard to imagine in any short medium run that computers can so first of all you know humans live in the in, in the physical and social world they can understand context uh, the machine can understand what's in front of it and do you know this change they can do this and that but understand context that now what they do is irrelevant For example, because we're now leading going towards a recession, and people will we have the the machine that does automatic ordering, and now 
the whole demand is going to change. People are going to go to value rather than stuff. People have moral code. You know, machines don't. And um, you can try to program it, but it's, it's always uh, kludgy. Um, people can adapt. People can coordinate. People can, when something happened, I, I, in one of my previ- previous book, the, uh, talk about the, uh, during the COVID, um, I mean, I wrote it called the, the new abnormal. Um, I wrote about how I had many, many examples of companies collaborating with competitors. I mean, that, that's hard to, and based on, and based on what? Based on trust that people knew each other. They went back to, you know, to business school together. They were, they, they were in the military together. Two CEOs, they knew each other. And without lawyer, without, in an American context, to say without lawyer is heresy, you know, but, Immediately, within days, thousands of workers and trucks were moving from one company to another. Uh, there was unbelievable cooperation between the people who developed the vaccine. I, I work with uh, you know, Moderna and Exxon. A lot of people cooperate. People have the, the creative drive, which actually can be enhanced. Hence, your example with the, <laughs> with the parents. Absolute example. Because people live in many worlds and they can take from one world to another. When you talk about the business, one cannot imagine negotiation and collaboration done automatically. You still, if you have to get a supplier in China, you're going to fly there, negotiate like hell for two days, and then go to dinner and talk about your kids and talk about your spouses and become friends. And that's how business is done. My point is supply chains are social networks, actually. The ultimate social network, because they happen between, between people. And then there's a question of risk tolerance, you know, the machines. Risk tolerance is something that's not fixed, something that changes depending on the context. It's another example. All these things are things that humans still have and uh, uh, and they'll work with the machines and evaluate the merit and direct the machine to change when uh, correct the machine failure, replace the machine. So, and all of, and, and since there'll be a lot more machines, There'll be a lot more work. There was one thing you said that was really interesting, which was with the changing demographics of the planet. So, for example, places like Japan and China, where people are living much longer, everywhere people are living much longer, which creates this kind of gap in pensions. So pension funds gap, etc. So that so you kind of go, well, that's happening. But one of the things I found fascinating from this section where I kind of tracked back and I went, well, if people are aging longer, they're also working longer and that's by they want to as well they want to have a purpose other than just living and one of the things you said here which was really fascinating was if you think about automation it actually things like an exoskeleton can actually help somebody work longer if they're older exactly not only this because it is clear that it's the easier the easiest job to replace are the more you know physical jobs because robots, that's what robots do. Exoskeleton help, help you. So the more jobs become, you know, managing and, and coordinating, you know, people who are older can do it as well. Now, that's again, people are fighting the wrong fight, especially in France. I mean, <laughs> look, you're talking to a 75-year-old who is going to work until they'll take me out feet first. Because what I'm going to do, you know, which is, oh, I can imagine you're fighting with your exoskeleton on, man. Yeah. 
well, in my job, I can teach, I can, you know, do research. Uh, so it's not a problem. You look but great for 75, by the way. People who aren't watching this, Yossi, no way you look 75. You're doing something right. Well, the calendar doesn't lie, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, 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 I'm still having fun, still having... Uh, um, but I'm looking at, uh, at people who retire. And the unfortunate thing, I feel they start declining after they retire. Because one needs purpose. So there are few lucky people who have tied to some social causes and start really getting into this. That's great. Um, but m many people that I know, you know, are not, uh, not doing it. And of course, if you are French, you think that retiring at age 62 is God-given right, even though the 62 age was when people left, uh, lived until they were 55. So, <laughs> so doing a retiring at 62 was nothing. Now people are living into the 80s, 90s. In fact, we know a lot of people who live in a retirement community that we are kind of half members in. Um, it has, it's a big community, but it has about 30 people or over 100. And totally with, totally with it. A lot of faculty, you know, tell jokes. And uh, it's really amazing. I, I, I tried to talk to them just for the fun of it. I, it's just uh, or to make me feel good that maybe I'll, I'll reach it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe we will. And I, I think, you know, this goes back to one of your points is that when you have the money in the coffers, I, don't, I, I mean, like as an organization, that's the time to invest in the future, not to defend the past. And the same goes for you physically, like physically invest. Yes. Oh, God, yes. Yes. No, absolutely yes. The, 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 yes, yes, yes. This is, this is the time. When I talk to, to workers, I say, right now you have leverage. You, they, they still need you. Make sure that the next labor contract say that they have to upgrade your skills. Must. It, it's part of, the, part of the deal. Companies, now you have the, the asset, you have the, the capability, you have the, still the profitability. What are you waiting? You're waiting until some startup will obviate you? I mean, that's where you play, you play defense and, and, and you lose. Uh, it's the time, but we all know it. We all know people who stay in the job for too long. CEOs, university president, what have you. Politicians in the United States <laughs> stay on the job for too long. Because the classic is to live at the top, be able to live at the top. But it's, it's difficult. I, you know, I, sold one of my companies to, to Ryder. And the CEO of Ryder, when retired, I, the CEO of the, of the part of the company that, that, that bought me, uh, retired, and I asked him, Larry, what does it feel when you retire? Because you were, you know, big cheese and all of this. He said, you know what's the worst thing? People stop laughing at my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> my, what, <laughs> my wife never laughs at my okay. jokes, so I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> People get used to people, to yes, people around them. People laugh at all their jobs. People do whatever they do. It's hard to live. But living on top, it is such a skill, such an ability to know when it's time. It's, it's always time before you think it's time, I think. and, and I, Exactly. <laughs> I, exactly. Uh, uh, maybe we'll finish because uh, we're on a positive note. And I think what you said there is just, if there's one thing people take out of this show, it's that it's, 
realize to invest in yourself like even to the point of you see people i've been that person so busy thinking you're so important in your job and then you're, you you yeah. lose your network all those things and then then you're finished and like on a, what do i do now what happened what, what look i i know i i started having this when i uh, started realizing that my students know certain things that i don't so i had to take a course in python programming i, I mean just just to get myself at, at my age, I, I need, I cannot allow myself to become irrelevant. And if I don't speak the language, I don't need to be a computer scientist suddenly, but I need to understand, I need to understand what's involved. So I'm doing research into AI because my students are all using, you know, machine learning, generative uh, AI. I need to be into it because otherwise I'm irrelevant here. And that's a beautiful way to say that the last part, and I'm skipping loads here, by the way, I have to say three and four are full of great research, great studies, all the references are there at the end of the book as well. It's it's a great resource for the latest studies and drawing the points out of those studies as well. But you mentioned the future of jobs report that came out in 2020 by the WEF, the World Economic Forum, it kind of gives 10 jobs that are the sharpest decline and then the 10 jobs they expect to be the sharpest increase in demand and maybe we won't go through all the 10 points but from from your overview from your feel your finger on the pulse of society and from the job market what are you seeing are the most desired jobs the types of people the types of skills that they'll need in the future okay so first of all since I'm a university professor, all, all my friends come to me when the kids have to go to college. And my uniform advice, almost to everybody, unless you are, you know, win the you know, Westinghouse Mathematics Prize and you are going to go, we're going to be start MIT, my advice is don't go to college. Because no AI will replace a plumber, an electrician, a builder, so go to a trade school. That's absolutely my advice. Uh, don't don't go to college to study, you know, ancient history, because you come out of it, and ChatGPT will write the paper better than you can, and will deal with more resources than you can you do in your lifetime, and will do it in 1.2 seconds, rather than four years of college. So, I'm trying, but of course, there's the, the go against the grain because all my friends want to be. My kid goes to X university. My kid goes. To, it's a it's a parent pride. So they they send the kids to school. The kids and in the United States it's outrageously expensive. So people come out with debts that are uh, anyway. It's a it's a flawed system. So you ask what I said. First of all, think about jobs that you do with your hands and all. And the reason is generative AI, because to, for the first time, jobs that are being threatened are jobs that. A require cognitive ability uh, the first time. To be sure, I also, uh, some of the jobs, that, uh, okay, there's a, a, a problem here because in many, when I talk to many companies, they say, for example, junior lawyer, junior programmers, these are in danger. Clearly, there's not going to be a robot that's going to argue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. There's not going to be, uh, you know, a complicated murder case. It's not going to be handled by by role. But the, the, the simple job, the simple programming job. And I tell these people, do you realize even what you're saying? How you get to be an experienced lawyer if you don't hire, if, if you leave all the simple jobs to the machine? You'll never have. So within 10 years, you will never have anybody because you have to grow them. You have to be. 
This is the challenge to make sure that people and machine can work together. So the lawyer will actually understand the work, do the work, um, be able to judge the uh, uh, generative AI just as important and be able to argue cases even when they're junior because otherwise you don't so you don't you don't trade them i don't think in the united states is clear the number of lawyers is not going to go down it's only going up because we sue for everything <laughs> but uh, in the number i don't think the number of programmers will the computer programmers will go down because there's more and more technology more and more digital technology that's uh, that's required so there there be some jobs that be other. We see jobs like uh, bank tellers. Okay, um, even though again, people forget that it's dealing with people. Like my wife hates to go; she will not go to supermarkets that are totally automated, because she likes to go to Whole Food supermarkets when you can automate and not that. She because the the, the, the clerks are like, hi, and how are you doing? And they talk for half an hour and, they, and she buys something. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there's a social dimension to all these stories, interactions, which I don't think. So there'll be some, there'll be some bifurcation. There'll be, um, retail outlets that will be totally automated, retail outlets that will say, no, we are a service operator. We like the, uh, human touch. Um, and then there'll be a combination. You think about when you call when you call your any company customer service, you talk to a chatbot basically. It's it's AI, generative AI for the most part today. It used to be press one to go here, press two to go here, press three to go here. No. Now you're talking. And somebody the, the, the machine is talking back to you. However, at one point either you get frustrated and start screaming, at least in the US you scream agent, agent, agent. Uh, or the machine gets frustrated and an agent comes. Uh, comes. So this, this this is one of the combination. When the machine does a job but monitored by a human, when the machine runs through its ability, a human comes up. It's a special case. That you need. So there are many modes of operation. And by the way, this mode of monitoring and getting involved when something happens is a very important future mode of operation. You need to understand you need to understand what the machine can and cannot do. That's the, the, the upgrading. And you need to be able to do the job and solve real complex problem or problem the machine cannot solve. But I see a lot of jobs in the future. Different jobs, but a lot of jobs. I'm going to pull one last little excerpt, a little sentence here that I think just encapsulates it and it'll be a lovely way to finish this series. And I want to thank you for your time and investment in this. I know your time is extremely valuable. And I'm going to come to you maybe for your final thoughts or your final message to our audience, because this book is about much more than a conveyor belt. It's about much more than <laughs> supply chain. It's about the supply chain of humanity, the supply chain of Spaceship Earth. And I really felt that. And I think this, for me, this little excerpt encapsulated. You say here, while computers may be masters of the digital world, the fact that humans live in the physical and social world gives them a superiority in several areas applicable to supply chain operations and management. Whereas a piece of software dutifully executes its algorithms, without exception, people can spot an exceptional change or a problem that requires implementing new processes. Beautiful, beautifully written, man. That nails it.
So what's your final message, Yossi, I, 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 before we, we wrap up for our audience? Final message is that change is coming. It's going to take more time than, uh, than people think. Both people and the writers of the codes have to adjust to the environment that people and machines will be working together. The machine, the, the, the codes have to be um, designed differently to make sure that it can take continuous input from the, uh, from the human. Humans have to change the mindset and be able to interact with the machine all the time. But I think I can see only good future. So I'm, I'm as I say, I, I, I'm an optimist. I see so many possible jobs coming and, and interesting jobs. Professor Yossi Shafi, author of The Magic Conveyor Belt, a magnificent book that goes much deeper than supply chains, as we talked about. I want to thank you sincerely for your time and investment in this show. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.